Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Pastor. It's always a, an honor to open God's Word and to attempt to truth to preach the truths that He has given us there. Uh, today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. That's going to be the main passage for today. Um, Genesis 1 is, is a historical account of, of the creation of all things. And in the last verse of that chapter, God declares everything together as being very good. And then Lucifer's pride destroyed him. He was cast out of heaven because he wanted to be the Lord. And then Satan tempted Adam, and Adam failed to protect his home, and he let a snake in. And uh, because of Adam's choices, sin entered this world. All humanity has suffered since then. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. We know that there's two kinds of death. There's a spiritual death and there's a physical death. And the spiritual death is substantially more destructive than the physical death. In physical death, the body becomes inactive. It becomes unable to perform. It simply doesn't, isn't able to do what it was made to do. In spiritual death, which is the consequence of sin, the results are eternal pain and suffering, eternal death, the, the process of eternally dying. Adam cursed all people because of his sin. All people are spiritually dead and will physically die if the Lord tarries. Romans 3 explains this for us, and it says... Verses 10 and 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were just talking about this. The, the dangers of using an electronic device for your notes. Um, Verse 24 says, um, and are justified, pardon me for a second here while I, I try to make this do what I want it to do that it doesn't apparently want to do. Um, verse 24 says, and are justified, talking about the sinner, is justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. And verse 26, it was to show his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very, very simply, very quickly, um, it's mostly the gospel. 
There's four main components of the gospel. God, man's sin, Christ, and man's response. And and in those words that I just said in the verses we just read, there wasn't a a response of man in there, an intentional uh, action based on the thoughts of man. I don't like lightly break apart scripture like like that and and just pull pieces out of verses but um, like the truth in Genesis like the truth in Romans 3 like this this very deep passage here in Ephesians Ephesians 2 these are are wells of God's truth and we need to soak in them we we need to jump in and soak in them and allow, allow it to permeate us so that we can be changed. It's good for Christians to visit doctrine frequently. This doctrine that we're talking about, the doctrine of sin, um, it's it's spread all throughout the Bible. It starts in the beginning and it ends at the end when God wipes away sin from his good creation and he makes all things new. Understanding our sinfulness will drive us to repentance, gratitude, and humility in Christ. That is our proper response to the gospel. Repentance, gratitude, and humility in Christ. And that comes from an understanding of our sinfulness. The sin that we're born into in Adam and the sin that we intentionally commit on our own. Spurgeon wrote, I am bound to the doctrine of the depravity of the human heart because I find myself depraved in heart and have daily proofs that there dwelleth in my flesh no good thing. Spurgeon was a student of the Bible and a gifted preacher, and he he clearly studied himself as he read the scriptures. There's a good lesson there for all Christians. We, we need to look at ourselves. We don't just read the Bible to find the truths. We have to apply those truths. We have to find the meaning in our own lives. How should we be changed because of what God's Word says? Gifted scholars and preachers like, like Spurgeon and Calvin and, and Sproul and Lloyd-Jones and, and, and so many more have studied God's Word and they've preached God's word and they've mined out these truths and we need to do the same thing. It's not just sermons and studies that are life changing. It's God's word that's life changing and God's word is life changing because God himself is life changing. He doesn't change but he changes us. Charles Hodge said Since in the scriptures are undoubtedly the word of God, with what reverence should we receive their divine instructions? With what acidity and humility should we study them? With what confidence should we rely upon the truth of all their declarations? And with what readiness should we obey all their directions? We are specifically concerned to learn what they teach with regard to the character of men, the way of salvation, and the rule of duty. I didn't know what a suity meant when I read this the first time. I had to look it up. It means constant or close attention to what one one was doing. So with that in mind, 
with what assuity and humility should we study them, the scriptures? With what confidence should we rely upon the truth of their declarations? And with what readiness should we obey all their directions? Romans tells us that that every person that ever lived is a sinner. That's a violation of God's holiness. And it's not just a label, it's a status. Today's world rejects status and personal identity and labels. It's fighting hard to get away from specific names that mean specific things. People just, just call themselves seemingly random terms. Um, they, they make things up to identify themselves with, with make-believe ideas, fabricated thoughts. And that is the benchmark for humanity. That's the norm for the sinner. It's what we're all born into is a either a misunderstood or a make-believe identity. But the reality, we're all born sinners because of Adam's sin. I know you don't need me to come in here and tell you that. It's nothing new for you to hear about sin and who we are as condemned from sin. And I sure hope I'm not the last guy to tell you that Jesus rescues sinners. That he clears the guilty, that he helps the helpless, that he strengthens the weak, that he heals the sick, that he brings the dead to life. We pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we as we think about the doctrines in your word, as we think about the the continuity of your word, the themes that run from start to end that describe the start and the end of humanity. Lord, impress your truth upon us. Give us a better understanding of who you are and who we are as sinners, as redeemed, as children of God, as the created to the creator. Lord, give us truth. Give us wisdom that we might apply this in our daily lives, that we might be, because of your word and your sanctification, we might more closely resemble Christ and less closely resemble the depraved sinner. We ask for your help, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I use those verses in Romans to, to, just, to just bring to mind man's commend, condemned state. It's, it's not a happy place to dwell. It's not some place I'd like to live. But man, it's necessary. It's good for us to remember who we were. If you're a Christian, if you're saved by grace and confident that Jesus is Lord, then you're not that sinner anymore. But we need to remember who that sinner was. Because that is what what magnifies the saving grace of Jesus. The free gift, the sacrifice, the humility of Christ. If we don't recognize who we were as a sinner in God's eyes, then we won't strive to be a better Christian, a better follower of of Christ. The goal of the message this morning is is to declare God's amazing character, to encourage the Christian that we're not who we once were 
and that one day, because of the hope we have in Christ, we will be fully sanctified. The application for day, today is for us to learn from God's model of forgiveness and generosity. As he has graciously shared with us out of his immeasurable riches, so we should generously share with others. We should offer forgiveness. We should offer love. We should offer compassion. We should offer finances. God didn't spare anything for us. What can we, in return, keep to ourselves and not share with others? This text in Ephesians, while not using this specific words, tells us that God has given us piles of grace upon piles of grace. And I, I think that's actually Galatians, maybe, if, if I'm thinking about where that came from. But, but that's what's referenced here. That's what we see. And it's, it's just amazing to consider as we look at who we were and, and who we will be. It's amazing to, to think about that we don't yet know how incredible and amazing and perfect and beautiful and magnificent Christ is. But one day, when we're not limited by, by this physical body and these weak eyes, we will see him for all that he is. And we will rejoice because of all that he is and all that he did. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the, the passage today. And it points us towards doctrines that men have divided over for centuries, for thousands of years. And it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't divide over God's word because it's not for us to trifle with. It's not for us to wrongly interpret. It's not for us to use man's logic to try and decipher. It's, it's for us to read and discern with the giftings and the illumination of the spirit that it may change us accordingly. The Bible is for renewing our minds. I've titled the sermon, Recognize, Rejoice, and Respond. Because these are three ways the Christian should react to the truths, the information that's presented in this passage. Please read along as I read the first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice that Paul is talking to the redeemed sinner. The author Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, to Christians, to those who God had already poured his grace upon. That's the audience. And this passage is, is just as applicable to this church and the people in this room who have been saved by grace as it was to the original audience. It, it says, the sinner was dead. And the sinner was living with the dead. And according to the, 
to the to the desires of a corrupted, sinful heart. That's the nature of man. John 3.19 tells us that people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Sinners love their sin. They live in communities of sinners. They, it's where they're accepted. It's where they're comfortable. And it's where their sinful desires are fulfilled. We see that in this passage, this community of sinners following Satan. Look at the terms in these first few verses. It describes disobedient rebels. Verse 2 says, following. And then again it says, following. Following the dark spiritual power that is Satan who was cast out of heaven. We are sinners and we are influenced by evil. That's a terrible combination. How can one expect to overcome those odds? By our own merit? By our own action? By our own power? No. Yet, verse 3 says, we were all like that, chasing after momentary satisfaction and fulfillment and disregarding what is plain to all mankind. Back to Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, which have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Satan's an evil spirit at work in the, in the world and he is deceiving those who are already blind. He rules over those who are rejecting God. He cur- encourages them with lies just like he did to Adam. He exploits their weakness. He preys on their worldly desires. He uses charm to coerce the lost into doing what they already want to do. He entices the eyes of men and women to, to someone who is attractive from the other sex. He glorifies personal power and honor and fame, and he builds upon the desires that already lay in the heart of the sinner, encouraging them to lie, cheat, and steal the positions, possessions, and people they desire. Satan encourages sinners and Christians to lie, cheat, and steal the positions, possessions, and people that they desire. All people desire power and glory and honor. It's it's innate. It's born into us in our sin nature. And and we don't need to argue about that. We only need to be honest with ourselves. Because we've all felt it. We've all seen it. We've all wanted it. Some people would desire power in a business-like setting. They'd want to have authority over other people. They'd want to see other people doing what they ask and producing something that they want. And that's not inherently bad. If somebody desired to make a better coffee cup that was that kept the coffee hotter and was easier to clean and didn't have a little tab that hits my nose every time I drink it, man, I'd be interested. And that'd be a good thing. As long as he did it in a morally upright and ethically proper way. But when people 
steal somebody's idea or when they, when they abuse their power over people. That's sin. And that's a silly example. But it brings to, I hope, brings to your mind the biblical truth is that carnal man operates in ways that are intended for good but manipulate it in an unscrupulous manner for personal gain and it's often at the expense of someone else. Selfish heart of man can be seen in all kinds of different ways. Sexual immorality has, has been a sin since the beginning and will remain a sin until the end. And it destroys lives. Sometimes it sneaks in, sometimes it bulldozes its way into someone's life. A supposedly, possibly innocent flirt makes a man's heart flutter. And if that man doesn't slam the door shut on that, what happens? The desire grows, the sin grows until it consumes him. And it ends in marital distress or divorce and divine judgment. Why do men and women do things like this? What's the, what's the instigation? Where's the motivation for, for one's actions? Well, well, there's only two real positions on this. Either one is motivated to obey their Savior, to please their Savior, to the one who left glory and sacrificed himself in a human birth and humility and obedience came and lived and was mocked and was shamed and died for the sins of the sinner. Either, either one loves that Savior and wants to please Him and obey Him because He's morally upright, or one is a carnal man, chasing after the desires of their own heart and living according to the cultural standards that are around them. I don't want to talk about the cultural standards in America today. Undecided genders, uncommitted relationships, unique personal expression, immediate satisfaction. These are the things that dominate our culture, the people's thoughts and desires that are around us. And they are vile to a holy God. All those who live according to the ways of the earth are under the wrath of God because they have violated his character and they act simply according to their own desires. They're at war with God, rejecting his moral law, rebelling against his civil authority, and refusing to worship him. That's the heart of the sinner. And what hope is there in that heart, in that man? Everything around them is pushing them away from God, away from truth. Verse 12 is just past the, the passage um, the main passage for today, but at the end of verse 12, it says, having no hope and without God in the world. Sinners don't have hope. They have nothing to look forward to except temporary satisfaction, personal glory, personal achievements. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, because of his deep eternal love. But God, because of his sacrificial love. But God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Very well-known verse. And when it's not also read with John 3.18, which says, whoever does not believe is condemned already, it can give false hope and false religion to a false believer. And that's no hope at all. Difficult truths are repeated in the Bible so that difficult people can recognize and respond to them. The truths in John 3 are similar to the truths in Ephesians 2 in that sinners are condemned and without hope unless God does a work in them. If you're saved today, what are you saved from? Are you saved from emotional heartache, from personal loss, from financial hardship, from relational difficulty, from physical or promotional temptations, from desiring power and glory for yourself? Is that what God saves you from? Or is salvation so much more glorious than that? Is salvation from sin the removal of God's wrath and and the blessing adoption of us into his eternal family? God doesn't promise the removal of all those other things. He promises sanctification to the obedient. That's a work that God does in us when we are responsible and react to him. John 16.33 says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus faced all these difficulties when he walked in the world. He was mocked, he was shamed, he was spit upon, he was beaten. He had nowhere to lay his head. He, He didn't have money to pay his taxes. Jesus lost loved ones. Jesus said this life is going to be hard. But for those he saved, he saved for eternal life outside of the difficulties of this life. And what did he do? When Jesus had difficulties, he went away and he prayed to the Father. Jesus, all-powerful, the God-man, fully God, fully man, went and prayed to his Father for strength, for encouragement, for direction, for guidance. It doesn't matter how strong of a man or a woman you are or how smart you are or what your status is. We all have to pray and we all have to lean on God because he is the only true fountain of strength. What did David do? All throughout the Psalms, David prayed. He cried out. He he cried. He yelled. He pleaded. Lord, help me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, give me mercy. Lord, smite my enemies. Jesus is the promised Messiah that will sit forever on David's throne. 
And what did David do? And what did Jesus do? And what does Ephesians 1 promise us? Ephesians 1, in overview, would say that God's eternal plan is to bring a people to himself through his son Jesus. Verse 10 describes the plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Verse 19 states the plan will be completed by the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe. Verse 20 declares that the plan was completed and is worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus was raised and is seated on his eternal throne where his eternal blessing is his eternal kingship over all things. Now look at chapter 2, verse 6. We will be seated with him in the heavenly places. doesn't mean that we're going to be king. It means we're going to be with the king. That's the blessing of glory. What a beautiful and fantastic thing to, to be in the presence of the Savior who lived and died for us. This world is difficult and it has trials and it has temptations, but to live is Christ and to die is gain. Through personal obedience to biblical commands and divine sanctification, the ransomed, those who were purchased by the blood of Christ, will be made more and more like Christ with their ultimate end being that of sinless saints who are forgiven in Christ because of Christ. This is the redeemed sinner's hope. The sinner has no hope. The redeemed sinner has hope in Christ because of Christ. It's a promise from the Almighty. What great, what great confidence can we have in a promise from the Almighty? And we've already seen him resurrect Christ. Thomas put his, put his hand in his wounds, touched, touched the wound in his side. 500 people were witness to the resurrected Christ. On the, on the Aramaeus Road, Christ opened the minds of the apostles. We have all these recorded accounts of the resurrected Christ in which we have our hope. Jesus is alive. And those who have been ransomed by his death will be alive with him again. They'll be alive with him in glory where the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. The glory of our risen Savior will be the most magnificent, most beautiful thing there is to see in the new heavens and the new earth. The Son is the radiance of the Father and the exact imprint of His nature. He is glorified because of His perfect nature and his humble, obedient, sacrificial works on earth, in one day he will be fully revealed in his transcendent, infinite nature. And when we are unrestrained by the limits of this body, we will see him in all his might and all his majesty. There is one God who deserves glory and honor and praise. There is one omniscient architect who designed all things. There is one omnipotent creator who spoke the world into existence. There is one merciful savior who rescued the helpless. 
There is one loving shepherd who will care for his flock forever. There is one righteous judge who will condemn and imprison the wicked. And there is one rightful king who will rule over all creatures for all eternity. Today, in preparation for that day, we need to recognize what God has done for the sinner, rejoice in the future we have for him, and respond according to his biblical guidance. Fear God, love God, worship God, study God. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul. Because, according to Jude 1, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Because, according to Romans 11, for from Him and through Him and for Him are all things, and because worthy is the Lamb who was slain, receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We need to recognize who we are, who God is, and we need to rejoice that God saves the sinner and that we have hope in an eternal future with him. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For those who were bought, purchased, ransomed by the life and death of Christ, we ought not diminish that work. Let's recognize the work of Christ. Let's respond to the work of Christ. If God did a work in you, if you recognize your sinfulness, if you've repented and trust that Christ paid your debt, what do you do? What's the Christian's proper response to recognizing that? The Holy Spirit, through the hand of Paul, gave us a lot of answers for that in the New Testament, and and many right here in the book of Ephesians. For the Christian, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To the bride of Christ, the church, Ephesians 4, says... You are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Husbands, Ephesians 5.25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, Ephesians 5.22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Unwed, Ephesians 5.16, make the best use of your time. Children, Ephesians 6.1 and 2, obey your parents in the Lord because this is good and it is 
Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that may you live long in the land. To anyone who doesn't have faith in Jesus, repent and believe. The words of Jesus in Mark 1, 15, 16. Submit to Christ. Allow him to cast away the chains of sin that tie you down and purchase your freedom. Freedom is in forgiveness. God pours out grace upon grace and he offers forgiveness. Forgiveness is when God commits to never again bringing up our deficits or our faults for the purpose of judgment. He doesn't demand a payment from us. Yet the, the redeemed are released and there is no more debt to pay. This passage, Ephesians 2, so often I've heard used as a condemnation to the lost, to the sinner, to the unbeliever, to the broken world. And it's used as, as, a, as a sword. And it's used to to declare the personal failures of others. But Paul's not really doing that. He's not looking to... He doesn't say, look what they did. He said, look what you did, church. Look what you did, Christian. Look what you did, redeemed sinner. Look who you were. Look what I saved you from. You were once following the prince with the power of the air, the, the Satan. You were a children of wrath. You were rebellious. You hated God. You were at war with Him. The first two words in this passage, and you, Christian. There's only two positions before God. The sinner and the redeemed sinner. Either we were saved by grace according to the great love with, with which God loved us, or we continue in our rebellion against Him. The results of God's intentional and unchangeable actions are placed onto the sons of disobedience. And the benefits of a life in Christ are gained by the children of wrath because God loved them first. The text states, God made us alive together with Christ. The instigator of salvation described here is the Father. The, the source of salvation described here is Jesus Christ. And the recipient of salvation described here is the sinner. That's how it's always been. God acts and we are changed. God is unchanging. We are changeable. Sin hasn't changed. God's sovereignty hasn't changed. God's provision hasn't changed. But we, through the grace of God and through faithful obedience, can change from what we were to what we are to something better to what one day will be sinless and completely guiltless in the presence of God. The saint's proper response and responsibility is to recognize Rejoice and respond 
to the changes made in us for our good and God's glory. We need to recognize our sinfulness and God's perfection. We need to rejoice because God acted on our behalf and we need to respond with gratitude and servitude. I'll close with a few words from J.C. Ryle. A few more years of watching and praying, a few more tossings on the sea of this world, a few more deaths and changes, a few more winters and summers, and all will be over. We shall have fought our last battle and shall need to fight no more. The presence and company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below when we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our own cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we shall ever doubt on which side the balance of the prophet lay. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. Christian, I hope you rejoice in who Christ is and what he has done for you. If you're unsaved, I pray you will submit to him today. Ask him to change your status, your sinfulness, and your eternal destiny. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the only righteous God, the only eternal God, the only transcendent God the only holy God, the only all-powerful and all-knowing and active and living God. Lord, I pray that you will act among us today and tomorrow and until Christ returns. Show us your truth. Show us our weakness. And show us that we are either redeemed or still condemned that we may come to you, that we may, we may follow you, that we may submit to you, that we may know you and love you and show others how magnificent and gracious and loving and forgiving you are. Lord, there is none like you, and your ways are not our ways. Sanctify us in your truth. Sanctify us by your Spirit. Make us to be more like Christ. Glorify yourself in us and through us, we pray today in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark. Let's close by taking our Trinity hymn books, turning to 267, the Word of God incarnate, a wisdom from our high. 267 Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand as we sing.